Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Podcast. Today, we have a fantastic guest from the University of Oklahoma, and I'm hoping I pronounced your name right. Is it Dr. Sassine? Yes, sir. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you for, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the Transplant ID podcast. A little bit about myself. I uh, was born in France and I grew up in Lebanon and I went to medical school at the Lebanese American University back in Lebanon. And then I moved here to the U.S. in summer 2015. I completed my internal medicine residency and I was a chief resident at uh, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center in New York City, which is now part of Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And then I completed my ID fellowship on the immunocompromised track at the University of Texas and MD Anderson in Houston. And currently I'm being a transplant infectious disease specialist and an ID faculty at the University of Oklahoma for Two and a half years, and that's my first job out of fellowship. That's fantastic. So I've had another guest on the podcast, Dr. Gadi Haider, who was also from, is it the same university? Is American University of Beirut and are they the same university? No, we're, it's a different university. Ours has a more recent school of medicine. Mm -hmm. the, the American University of Beirut has kind of one of the really kind of oldest medical school programs in Lebanon and the oldest English-based American system kind of education in the mm -hmm. country. And, and what is, what's medical school like in uh, Lebanon compared to the experience that you've seen with the trainees here? Sure. So first, in terms of structure, it depends on what kind of school you go to. So if you're going to the American University of Beirut or the Lebanese American University where I went, or there are, I think, a couple more institutions with an American style of education. You do college, undergrad for over there, it's three years. I think there's four years. Mm -hmm. and then you apply to medical school, just like you do here in the US. You sit for the MCAT, you interview. And then you get accepted, and then it's four years of medical school. The first two years are basic science, and the second two years are clinical rotations. Mm -hmm. So it's actually almost similar to what, what medical students go through here in the U.S. There are a few other schools that follow the French system, where you actually get taught in French. And in the French system, you essentially get into medical school straight out of high school. And it's usually a seven-year program. Some programs have, a, at the end of the first year, have like a major exam that determines whether you actually move on. And then once you pass that exam and you move on, you're good. But it's usually a seven-year program. You don't get a separate, you just get one degree, which is your MD degree. Mm -hmm. They do about five years of basic science and then two years of clinical work. So in a nutshell, that's what it kind of looks like. So then after graduation, you came to New York City. Uh, how was the transition from, is it Beirut that you were at? Yeah, so I did my clinical years in Beirut. I, I originally grew up in Ishben, or another name for that city is Biblos, which is, I want to say, 35 kilometers north of Beirut. And 
probably one of the oldest cities in the world, so a lot of history, but smaller city. And then I spent three years in Beirut. And then I moved to New York City to a program that's on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So pretty mm-hmm. abrupt transition there. But it was, I would say it was fun, especially for, you know, the stage of my life I was at, pretty intense. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't want to live there right now. So kudos to all our colleagues who practice medicine there and, and live there on a daily basis. And I still have some of my co-residents who live there. But definitely a very, a very different, both in living on a daily basis and then in the way medicine is practiced. Sure, sure. And, and now you mentioned uh, Byblos, and I, ha- I believe I've seen pictures of Roman ruins in Byblos. Is that, I guess you grew up in the shadow of these ancient civilizations and then at the same time, a very modern civilization. Correct. So, so Byblos was originally founded by the Phoenicians. Wow. And there are still Phoenician ruins. And, and the, the Phoenicians were people who liked trading. Mm-hmm. That was kind of their essential occupation. So they established multiple cities along the coast of that area because mm-hmm. it would facilitate trading by sea. So they were not very mountainous type of people. They were more kind of coastal. Mm-hmm. So most of the cities along the coast in, in Lebanon and in that area of the world were established by Phoenicians. And Biblos is one of the oldest of them. I think it's estimated that 6,000 years before Christ is when it was established. Wow. And then as part of the history of, of that area of the world, they've seen everything, right? So the Greeks have been there, which is where the named Biblos is, is the Greek name of the city. And then the Romans passed by, there's still an outdoors Roman theater that you can actually visit, or you can visit the ruins of it. And then there were there are a lot of remnants from the Crusaders. Actually, before the Crusaders, the port of Biblos is still the Phoenician port with kind of the Roman changes to the port. And mm-hmm. then the Crusaders built a very famous citadel to defend the city when, when they got there. And that citadel is still there. And you can actually visit it. They built one of the biggest churches in, in that town as well. And then obviously kind of more recent uh, things. I think a few years back when I was still there, they were doing some pavement work. And they unearthed some Byzantine mosaic. Mm-hmm. On a random street so yeah it's like it's very immersed in in history for sure wow wow uh, so you went from that to new york city and then from new york city to houston which is yet another total sea change i, I imagine and you were at md anderson correct so ut and md anderson run a joint fellowship program your home base is actually at ut Mm-hmm. They have a couple of fellowship tracks. I went on the immunocompromised track where you spend most of the time at, at MD Anderson and you do your research at MD Anderson. So I got a pretty different experience, kind of larger scale institutions for sure, more cutting edge treatments in terms of cancer and their complications, clinical trials, and, you know, patients who come in having had 12 different infections in the past two years, 
having failed seven lines of therapy and they get administered new drugs that you're not really sure what's going to happen after that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this was definitely a major change compared to what I had experienced in residency. I do remember my first month of consults at MD Anderson was on the stem cell transplant team. And I don't think I had a great idea of what was going on back then, but we've I've definitely learned a lot and changed a lot since then. Yeah, yeah. The learning curve is, is tremendous. And you had an opportunity to work with some of the uh, finest researchers in the country. And uh, I saw that you had published on uh, respiratory viral infections. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you did there and what work you continue to do in, in that area. Sure. So I I was very fortunate to work with Dr. Oshimali, who continues to be my my research mentor up until now. He is one a top-notch researcher, and on top of that, he's he's really a great mentor who knows how to support you in your growth as mm-hmm. as a fellow and then as a junior faculty. And I think that that's something very important for prospective fellows and prospective junior faculty to have. Mm-hmm. With that, yes, yeah, so we we have worked some on respiratory viruses. And I think one of the most recent pieces we we published together was looking at kind of what challenges we have encountered in designing clinical trials for antiviral therapy to treat respiratory viruses and specifically in uh, hematopoietic cell transplant. But this can also extend really to most of the immunocompromised population. And, you know, I think over the past seven, eight years, and if we exclude COVID for a minute, we've had maybe four or five drugs, seven or eight trials done for various indications. Most of them were RSV, parainfluenza. There's been a couple with even influenza. And None of these trials met their primary endpoint or any of their efficacy endpoints. And and that's kind of depressing, I, I would say. And it's already very challenging to recruit patients for respiratory virus trials just because of their seasonality, how common yet uncommon they are, and as a result, a lot of these trials that people put in a lot of effort for these trials, and you're talking about trials where people have recruited patients over five seasons, seven seasons, like that's a lot of work. And for them not to reach the primary endpoint is, is uh, significant. And, and we've identified, I think I, 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 we classified those challenges into three categories. There was a group of challenges related to what endpoint was chosen. Was chosen. Sometimes the choice of the endpoint is, is might not be the right one, and whether in terms of clinical significance or whether how easy it is to reach that endpoint. There were very heterogeneous populations in terms of risk in, in those trials, and I think we can both agree on the fact that somebody, say, who had an autologous bone marrow transplant 
a year ago is very different risk from someone who had relapsed leukemia, uh, failed a CAR T, and then got an allogeneic transplant uh, two months ago and has active GBHD on steroids. So in terms of risk, they're they're very different. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you cannot measurably enroll these two patients in the same trial and expect to to see a significant outcome. And then there were some issues with how the, I would say the study design, proper sample size, inclusion, exclusion criteria, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we kind of looked at that and we, we tried, I think we, we published that kind of editorial commentary in, in CMI this past summer. And, and we tried to essentially look at what would be a decent framework for antiviral therapy trials and, and those respiratory viruses. And I think the, the most important things are, one, to risk stratify the patients and try to focus on those patients who are at the highest risk of progressing to a lower respiratory tract infection or to having a, a complicated lower respiratory tract infection course, meaning ending up in ICU, ending up on mechanical ventilation or, or mortality. And you can do that through several ways. There are a couple of uh, scoring systems out there. One of them that was actually developed by, by Dr. Shemali, ISI score, Immunodeficiency Scoring Index, which is very specific for, for adult transplant and has certain factors and wants to meet a certain number of points, you're at intermediate or high risk of uh, progression to lower respiratory tract infection. It was initially developed mostly for RSV, but it got validated later on at various centers for other respiratory uh, viruses. So I think that's a good kind of starting point in terms of risk stratification. And I do think now we have more kind of uh, biomarkers you could incorporate, you could adapt the score to cellular therapies, for example. Like we have a huge lack of understanding in, in, in CAR T-cell patients. And I know in your previous episode, you, you already discussed that, I think, with, with Dr. Little in length. We need a better understanding for those patients as well. And I think we can use some of the newer trial techniques that have been done when one in COVID, like adaptive randomization, big platform trials, I think we can incorporate those lessons we use we learned, sorry, from the COVID trials and our other respiratory viruses, because at the end of mm-hmm. the day, a lot of the pathophysiological framework is closed. And then we can also look into certain trial techniques that our colleagues in oncology are using, especially for like rare tumors or rare diseases, where it's also hard to enroll patients. And they do rely a lot on external controls or historic controls. A platform trial can allow you to have one control group and then multiple intervention. This way you're saving on your control and you're randomizing more patients to the intervention. So, so these are all kind of clinical trial techniques one could, could incorporate. Mm-hmm. So for, for the listeners, the viewpoint of the commentary article is in clinical microbiology and infection, and it's clinical trials for treatment of respiratory viral infections and in recipients of hematopoietic cell sam transplantation and cellular therapies, or are we on the right track to the finish line? And the lead author is Dr. Sassine. One of the things that I really took from that article, and I shared it with my colleagues because I think that it, it, it really hits an important point, is there's a table in there that shows all the failed trials 
And the successful trial, though, one successful trial that it reached the endpoint where you can make some sense as to what you found was in preventing upper respiratory tract infection to going on to causing lower respiratory tract infection. And, and I think that it hits at a very, very important point, which has to do with what kind of trial is easy to do. I mean, no trials are easy, but easier to do. And what kind of trial is very hard to do. So an inpatient trial is a lot easier to do than an outpatient trial for an infection because the patients are there. An outpatient right. trial where the patient is is living 90 miles away from your center and has developed symptoms of of a respiratory syncytial virus and uh, maybe went to Quest or LabCorp and was diagnosed with RSV. And now you're saying, okay, I would like you to drive 90 miles to Oklahoma City where we can see you and give you a therapy or placebo. Well, that's going to be pretty hard to get that patient to come in. So those are very hard trials to do, but those are the trials that need to be done because once the virus has set up shop in the lower respiratory tract, the role of antivirals is important. But as we've learned from many years of experience, it's only part of the story at that point. Maybe immune modulators, maybe bacterial superinfection, fungal superinfection, meticulous ICU care. Those things are incredibly important and those things are just add to the variability and and make the decision about whether drug A or drug B works uh, much less clear. Correct. I agree. And, and you know, in, in our immunocompromised patients, you can still argue that there's still some degree of ongoing viral replication, even when the virus moves to the lower respiratory tract. Sure. Uh, but I agree. I think we've learned, and I think this is also part of the lessons to learn from COVID. Essentially, we've We've learned that most of the activity we can get out of these antivirals is if you intervene at the upper respiratory tract stage. So that's one big lesson. I, I do want to mention, I think, the group at the University of Minnesota, I think Dr. Bulware, if I'm mm-hmm. saying his, his name right, uh, did try to set up a, a pretty cool outpatient COVID trial situation where they would you would actually enroll online and then yep. they would mail you the drug. And I think that's that's something we somebody should try for, for other respiratory viruses. It still requires some effort from the patient, but that might be one, one solution. And yeah, I agree with the with this sentiment. And we see this in patient care. I mean, I I work here at, at the University of Oklahoma, about half of our patients get referred to us from outside hospitals. A lot of my clinic patients drive two hours, three hours to come over to see in clinic. And Mm -hmm. that's just for like routine clinical care. So you can imagine how difficult it is to do this for a clinical trial. If you're measuring PKPD, if you're having to do like every other day visits or like even weekly visits, it can be pretty challenging. Yeah, you mentioned the the term outside hospital, which is a term that people like me and you who work in university hospitals uh, are used to. But the truth is, is that the vast majority of care in the United States uh, that's given in hospitals, I mean, the vast majority of care that's given in the U.S. is given in the home. But uh, the care that's given in hospitals happens at community hospitals and research infrastructure is very focused on academic centers. And that is a problem for outpatient trials. Agreed. And, you know, especially to give a more transplant ID related example, most of our allo transplants will follow us with us for the first, say, 90, 100 days. And after 100 days, 
a lot of them are going back to the community oncologists for follow-up. And, and this is where they get their vaccines post-transplant. This is where they get kind of their routine care. You, we might end up seeing them if they get, say, a big GVHD event, but those routine things like a respiratory tract infection are, are dealt with in the community. And yeah, this is why it's difficult to, to recruit patients for these trials. So switching gears, but staying within the realm of respiratory viral infections, more and more, we have people that even fairly immune suppressed people that have uh, SARS-CoV positive testing discovered as an incidentaloma, that uh, they are uh, using the term from a CAT scan that shows an incidental finding that you don't know what it means, in that the patient is coming in for routine care, maybe being prepared for a uh, autologous or an allogeneic stem cell transplant as part of some sort of screening protocol. They have SARS-CoV that is positive. They are asymptomatic or asymptomatic. And then the whole machinery of getting the transplant has been set in motion, particularly if, if they've already received the conditioning regimen. And then you say, well, okay, what do we do now? How are you approaching similar situations like that if you're getting called from the oncology unit with somebody who's tested positive and is at home or at a hotel room near the medical center and they want to know, okay, what do we do now? Yeah, so I think the first the first question is how posi-symptomatic are they? So, mm-hmm. of course, a good history exam chest imaging can can help. Sometimes we still see lower respiratory findings, even without a whole lot of symptoms. But but that set aside, I think the the ASTCT for, for bone marrow transplants and then the ASD for the solid organ transplants have been pretty proactive and, and helpful in kind of setting some guidance for these for these patients and for these specific specifically tricky situations. Mm-hmm. I think for for bone marrow transplant, uh, I think the consensus is still to delay the transplant, usually by a couple of weeks. I'm not personally aware of the date if there's any COVID or SARS-CoV two specific data there, uh, but I think that's extrapolated from our experience with other respiratory viruses before COVID. Sure. And that's was the recommendation, say, for flu or RSV, and that's still the recommendation for, for, for SARS-CoV-2. In the organ transplant world, I think it's more debatable. I know there were some early studies showing some, some higher risk undergoing general anesthesia if, you, if the recipient actively has a SARS-CoV-2 infection. But clearly, we've, since then, we've evolved a lot from... Mm-hmm. Uh, from those early days, uh, many of the recipients have an okay immune system mm-hmm. before transplant and have received the vaccine. So they have some form of immunity. And this is why we're seeing more of the posi-symptomatic uh, situations. And I think the guidance is if they truly are asymptomatic on a case-by-case basis, you can actually proceed with a transplant. I personally have recommended to proceed with a transplant in a couple cases, and we've had good outcomes. Mm-hmm. We have given those patients five days of remdesivir starting on, day, on the day of transplant and for five days, just in a more preemptive treatment way. 
Of course, I have a small sample number. It's not generalizable data, but I've had an okay experience with that. And I think that's probably the shared sentiment among some of my colleagues whom I've discussed this with. Yeah, I think that that's moving toward the direction. There was a a, a study published by Sofia Zavala at When You Need to Dive in the Deep End Transplanting SARS-CoV-2 PCR positive recipients. It was in March of, it was published in the summer of 2023, and it described about 12 patients where they they did the transplantation, and it seemed like they did fine. Some of them received antithymocyte globulin. Some places use a cycle threshold as a means of getting a sense as to how much virus there is. Uh, I, I will say that the big caveat about cycle threshold is that it, it's not a standardized test, and uh, one person's cycle threshold uh, does not equal to another person's cycle threshold using the same exact uh, respiratory secretions uh, from the same exact patients. And uh, also, there's been an, an effort in the past few years to uh, try to eliminate as much as possible homegrown tests that are not approved by regulatory agencies for making clinical decisions. I think it's a bigger discussion whether that's a, a wise decision or not, because some of the uh, people that are in the lab do fantastic work, I'll say. And when people ask me, why is my institution, Johns Hopkins, as good as it is? And one of the big reasons is because we have a fantastic pathology laboratory that does creative things and can give us solutions and can give us a picture of what's going on with our patient that's much deeper than we would through other ways. That having been said, increasingly pathology laboratories are feeling very nervous about reporting cycle thresholds, even reporting it unofficially. Correct. I And I share the sentiment. There are days where I think you're, you're as good as your microbiology lab is. So I definitely share, share that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears completely out of the viral world and into the bacterial world. And you've published about Pseudomonas aeruginosa and pneumonia. And I think appropriately so, there's an overwhelming movement in medicine to try to give shorter courses and more focused courses of antimicrobials. However, with uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, you and your colleagues have uh, raised an alarm bell saying maybe this uh, overall approach is, is not good for every situation. And uh, what is your concern about Pseudomonas aeruginosa? Sure. I think this is a good discussion, also very relevant to transplant ID, even though it really is more of an ICU ID word. But definitely for transplant ID, we do see a lot of invasive pseudomonas infections. And I think the discussion also applies broadly to the other non-fermenters like Acinetobacter, Stenotrophomonas, mm -hmm. which are also kind of very important pathogens in, in our world. And here I also want to give credit to my ID pharmacist, Emily Segrist, who also collaborates on a lot of research work with me. And this was one of the pieces we, we wrote together. So big context, uh, as you mentioned, there is a big drive towards shorter courses for bacterial infections. And in the world of pneumonia, there has been a big drive towards moving from the 14-day course to the seven-day course for most of the microbiological etiologies of pneumonia. And I think this still the last uh, standout for the non-fermenters, most famously pseudomonas. Mm -hmm. uh, and multiple groups have tried and multiple trials to evaluate 7 versus 14, 8 versus 14 days. And I think in, invariably they've hit the 
problem of recurrence with the mm-hmm. shorter courses. Mm-hmm. So, so this kind of letter to the editor is something we wrote in response to a trial that came out of France, where they also tried to evaluate, I think, eight versus fourteen days of antibacterial therapy for for pseudomonas pneumonia, and it came out in in, an, in a critical care medicine journal. And here it was kind of a more kind of direct rebuttal to the conclusion that the the authors, I think, maybe concluded a shorter course as non-inferior to the longer course, despite their data not exactly showing that. But again, here in the shorter course group, there was a higher rate of clinical recurrence. And and here I want to give them some, some kudos for really looking at clinical recurrence. A lot of these pneumonia trials look at microbiologic recurrence, mm-hmm. which we can argue how patient-centered this outcome is. And does it really matter if I still recover pseudomonas and sputum a week later, but my patient is doing better? Mm-hmm. So I think they, I think here, and going back to our earlier discussion about uh, clinical trial design, I think this was a very relevant endpoint. Uh, mm-hmm. They looked at clinical recurrence, and there was a higher rate of recurrence in the shorter group, and there was a trend towards a higher mortality in the shorter group. So, yeah, I think. Uh, there were a few other issues with that study. They did not reach their enrollment goal. Again, one other good trial that got disrupted due to, to the pandemic. But at the end of the day, I think we still do not, do not have the data that would make me confident to go for a shorter course of therapy for non-fermenters, pseudomonas included. Um, and, and hopefully reference... that changes in a few years, but uh, not yet. Uh, thank you. I'm sorry for cutting off. For reference, this is the article is in Intensive Care Medicine, and it was published in 2022. Shorter might not always be better. The case for longer antibiotic therapy for Pseudomonas aeruginosa pneumonia. I'm sorry to have cut you off there. No worries. In our last few minutes, I want to cover a couple of topics. One is going back to the viral world, CMV. There's been a lot of changes in CMV in the bone marrow transplant world, and it's starting to seep into the solid organ transplant world and beyond. Tell us about your what you've been doing with CMV. Sure. So uh, one of my first and probably my major research project out of fellowship was to essentially look at the reward outcomes of Letermovir primary prophylaxis in uh, allogeneic transplants. And as, as you and probably most of your audience knows now, late 2017 is when Letermovir got approved as primary prophylaxis in allotransplant. And before that, for, for the longest time, the, the paradigm has been in uh, bone marrow transplant, we really only do preemptive therapy and not have this a hematologically safe drug to give mm-hmm. as blanket prophylaxis to everyone. Whereas, again, for the longest period of time, the paradigm in solid organ transplant has been to give everybody blanket prophylaxis based on donor and recipient zero status. And both of these are actually changing nowadays, as, as you alluded to. So the first paradigm that I think has really changed is an allotransplant I think standard of care now is primary prophylaxis with, with the time of year. And, and the work we, we did, we looked at about 
550 patients out of MD Anderson who got an allo transplant over a course of two and a half years. There were 123 who got uh, Letermovir and then north of 400 who did not. And, and we compared those two groups and we found, obviously, just as the clinical trial did, less clinically significant CMV infection. For the first time, we described less CMV and organ disease. So not just reduction in the viremia, reduction in the end organ disease, which is what kills the patients. We found a, a reduction in refractory resistant CMV, which are incredibly challenging infections to, to treat. And we found a decrease in the non-relapse mortality at week 48 in the patients who got letemovir compared to those who did not. And I think those were very significant findings. And since then, I think there was there were multiple other real-world data corroborating those findings. I think there was a pretty nice systematic review and meta-analysis that got published, and in, in, I want to say a year ago, that kind of put all this data together and showed the same findings. And since then, we've really, with, of course, under supervision of Dr. Shemali, we've expanded on that database. Some fellows that came after me expanded on that, added more, more patients. And there's, there's going to be some exciting data coming out of it that I cannot discuss yet, but hopefully we, we, we will see that soon. So I do want to say, yeah, Letemovir really changed the landscape in, in allotransplant in terms of CMV risk. I think it's a standard of care up until day 100, the trial to extend up until day 200 in high-risk patients got, I think, got published last month. Pretty exciting data. With that, you always have the question of, is Letermovir suppressing CMV-specific immune reconstitution after transplant? Mm -hmm. And and that's a good question. I think the group out of Fred Hutch did prove that by the number, that Patients on on term of year are have a delayed CMV specific immune reconstitution. That said, I personally don't think that is necessarily a bad thing, but I hope that soon we'll have the data to, to prove that. Now, in the organ transplant world, one, the first thing you, you alluded to is Letermovir has now creeped into the organ transplant world. I think we have good data on high-risk kidneys that got published last spring to use Letermovir as with Letermovir being kind of non-inferior to Valgan cyclovir, which has been standard of care in terms of prophylaxis. But the other paradigm shift I, I want to highlight, and it's starting to show in, in the organ transplant world, is, is, is primary prophylaxis necessarily better than preemptive therapy or uh, than a preemptive therapy alone strategy? And again, for the longest time we thought so, I think there was um, a trial, the capsule trial. It got published in spring 2020, and I think it got overshadowed with all the COVID drama that was happening then. Mm-hmm. And, and I personally didn't get to hear a whole lot about it until the last ID week, there was a really good talk about it by Dr. Limai from Seattle, who's, who's the principal investigator of the trial. And then I think a few months ago, they did a post hoc survival analysis on this trial. And it seemed that the group that got prophylaxis had higher mortality than the group that had preemptive therapy. And you would think that's something that's settled in the CMV world, but it's actually mm-hmm. not. So mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of a lot of movement in how we understand the CMV post-transplant for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
I would say that some of the things that come to play in terms of CMV in the bone marrow transplant group is uh, it used to be that the serial status of the donor and recipient were critical. And are, are you saying that uh, that you would support just across the board prophylaxis, not even uh, focusing on the serial status, or do you still focus on the serial status? No, I think we're. I think. This entire discussion is really targeted in the bone marrow transplant world on seropositive recipients. Sure, sure. I think of, of the seronegative recipients, the, there are not a whole lot of patients who are at risk unless they've had an exceptional amount of post-transplant transfusions. Sure. But yeah, this is mostly on seropositive recipients. That said, I think right now, based on the data we have for seropositive recipients, the standard of care is primary prophylaxis. I know there are, there are groups trying to look at whether within the seropositive group, um, is there a subgroup that might benefit more of prophylaxis or might benefit less of prophylaxis? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of chatter on how and and data being probably uh, prepared on how do we incorporate those CMV-specific T-cell immunity assays mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. our risk stratification to initiate prophylaxis, but I think mostly in when to discontinue prophylaxis. Does everybody need 100 days? Does everybody sure. at high risk need 200 days? Maybe some patients need more, maybe some patients need less. And and I think that, that that's a great clarification and great providing of uh, additional context as to some of these nuances and, and areas that hopefully in the not so distant future, some AI machine will be able to tell us whether this particular BMT recipient should get latermavir or not and when to stop it. And maybe it'll just query their epic chart without us having to put all that information into a clinical calculator. In terms of the solid organ transplant recipients, I think all of us have seen the the damage of uh, neutropenia in patients that have the combination of uh, valga and cyclovir, particularly when the uh, renal function is changing and they may be uh, overdosed uh, inadvertently when given in combination with uh, mycophenolate, particularly when you're using the higher doses of mycophenolate. So I, I can see a situation where there could be an advantage to not having the patient on valga and cyclovir if we can avoid it. And then that's balanced by what kind of infrastructure you have. If your patient lives 90 miles away from your medical center, they're dependent on LabCorp or Quest, and LabCorp or Quest is dependent on the insurance paying for the CMV, and the insurance has changed because it's the end of the year. Hey, and the organization that you work for has decided that you're going with a different insurance, and the patient doesn't get their CMV tested a couple weeks in a row and all of a sudden it's been a few weeks and the CMV is shooting through the roof, but nobody knows it because nobody has gotten a little tickler that the CMV PCR testing, oftentimes we only know that a test has been done in our patient when we get the results happening on our laptop, we don't have a, or on our desktop, we don't have a reminder saying, hey, the patient did not get their CMV done. So a lot of Correct. logistics. Correct. Yeah, and we struggle with prior off even still for Valgan. And I think one of the big preconditions to having a preemptive therapy strategy alone is to have reliable access to a highly sensitive CMV assay with a good turnaround time. I think that's uh, that's an important precondition there, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. And that's something that a clinical trial might not capture. Correct. 
Yes. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. And I'd like to tell everybody that not only did he do a fantastic job in terms of going from respiratory viruses to bacteria to CMV, but he did this while weathering a fire alarm or a fire drill at the University of Oklahoma. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.